Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Okay, 2022. I hope you all had a good break and are now ready to get back to it. I know you're probably not, <laughs> but that's just the way that it is. Um, yes, this is the second round of this intro I recorded because I, I said, you, I hope you're all raring to go for another year at 2022. And then I thought, well, 2020 and 2021, I mean, they've been pretty okay years. But yeah, obviously, there's some major things that have happened that have not been great. So uh, yes, the less said about all of this, the better. Let's just concentrate on uh, making good recordings and making music and focusing on that kind of stuff, shall we? <laughs> um Okay, so this episode I'm speaking with a chap called John Rayham, who is a Canadian producer and drummer. Um, and I first came across his work before I even knew who he was, essentially. Um, so I uh, got a copy of an album by a band called The Be Good Tanyas, uh, and it's kind of Americana, bluesy sort of stuff, and I was really into it. Um, little did I know that John Rayham was who was playing drums on it, but I loved the drum sound. It was so thick and uh, just quite basic, if I'm honest with you. And it was one of the first times I'd heard such understated drumming. And, um, and it really stood out as that's what I want my playing to sound like. Um, then I followed the Bigo Tanya's career for a while. And uh, Frazee Ford is the, the sort of the lead singer, if you like. And she went off to have a solo career. Um, which John Rayham uh, produced and uh, played drums on. So again, just became even more in love with the sound that he made, he created. And it became quite obvious to me that the the sort of uh, approach that he had to everything, into, you know, sonically and um, in terms of attitude towards recording, was something I was aspiring to in, in what I was doing. Um, so then I came across a website for a recording studio in Canada called Afterlife Studios. I do go down a lot of rabbit holes on the internet. And this studio um, was sort of born in 1966 and was formerly called Mushroom Studios. And uh, lots of well-known artists recorded there, including uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Rumour has it that Led Zeppelin uh, did a bit of recording there at one point too. Um so it was a proper 60s studio. So it kind of got me thinking. I was like, okay, cool. And it, on the website, it doesn't say John Rayham anywhere. Um, so I was kind of curious as to um, this studio. I wanted to speak to the owner about its history. Little did I realize that the owner was John Rayham, who was in on all these records that I absolutely loved. So that made it clear to me that I had to speak with him. <laughs> so this conversation is all about the studio. And if I were you, I'd go to Afterlife Studios website and check out some of the gear he's got because it's relevant to the conversation. He talks about his approach to hybrid recording, not just hybrid mixing, hybrid recording, which is incredibly interesting. And also uh, his approach to drum sounds and a uh, yeah, loads of stuff. We cover cover a lot of stuff here. So it's, I'm very excited to share this with you. And it's a really inspiring conversation. I have, um, yeah, I've, I've my head has been buzzing since we finished it. So here we go. John Rayham. Uh, a bigger Tanya's record as, a, as the thank you present. Oh, wow. Was it Blue yeah. Horse or something? I think it was, yeah. Yeah. And, um... I just fell in love with it. And then when I found Frazee Ford was doing solo stuff, it, yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, just incredible. So it's kind of felt like, uh, 
this feels kind of uh, nice cool. speaking to you <laughs> yeah sure. well yeah i mean that was uh yeah it's been quite a long evolution since then for sure for yeah for all of them but crazy especially because she kind of sort of branched from that trad folk thing into the more the more like the spirit animal that she really is now with, the, <laughs> with the, her records and uh, i also noticed i didn't know this at the time but um the, a lot of them that music's released on network and the band the band i kind of had my success with was very nearly signed to network which is kind of nice so again it was an, another little like all oh, right you guys that you know all those records are on network <laughs> so i was rattling on before i realized that uh i'd got cut off but what project was that that you were almost on network with um, so we uh, we were called Dancing Years, um, and it was a kind of um, sort of folky pop, I suppose, but it was more um, cinematic. Um, and oh, we cool. did a lot of touring with um, Boy and Bear, the Australian band. Oh yeah, um, and that's oh, how the yeah. that's how the link up came. Um, right. So then the I mean, it's the uh, you know the usual story that the um, so the A and R. Uh, who was working with Boy and Bear in the UK um, and wanted to sign us. And then he had a falling out with the label and, you know, I I have the deal on my laptop and it was (laughs) that close. And then you you know what it's like. And then suddenly that was the, the, um, the sort of straw that broke the camel's back and everything imploded. (laughs) Uh, So when was that? Like, Oh, talking uh, sort of 2014. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fairly long time ago. Um, But it was a, it was frustrating because it was. Uh, I joined as a as a separate um, musician, so those okay. guys all went to school together and sort of grew up together. Oh, right. and, and then I came to the city where I live um, from somewhere else and was sort of yeah. working as a professional musician and came into the band um, separately. I and see. So I'd kind of set my life up to accommodate pitfalls like that, and none right. of them had. So yeah, when, yeah, it was it was it was pretty. Uh, excruciating to be honest and we were we were busy working on an album and we thought you know you know it was enough money to live off for about a year and have some healthy tour support and and we kind of thought this is a you know this is going to set us up for a little while um yeah it felt like a really good home for us and we thought you know you know this might this will be it but yeah when it fell through i think everybody went this is too much i can't do this anymore um yeah that that sort of you know what it's like it's a very very common story (laughs) i do man yeah it's tough it is really it's tough you know like that transition from doing this because i love it to okay this is my career is a you know tenuous transition for a lot of people like that Mm. line is tough to cross uh, absolutely for bands yeah. Yeah. yeah so completely especially when they're you know it's was never the intention to to become a, a sort of an artist if you like they just sort of happened to happened upon yeah. it yeah you know? yeah and it um, Although, makes that's it kind of most of my favorite bands are start that way just hmm. happened upon something cool and they've known each other for a long time and the chemistry's good but then yeah so many things have to go right and exactly. So much of it is out of the control of the artist. <laughs> Precisely. And so you know, we're not we're not rewarded for making the best art. We're rewarded for all kinds of other things. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Canada's got a lot happening at the moment. Uh, well, not even at the moment, but I guess through um, through when I was working with Dancing Years, we I mean we listened a lot to. 
um, Broken Social Scene, Feist, yeah. Um, yeah. Bahamas, uh, Dan yeah. Mangan, um, yeah. just absolutely tons of, you know, uh, Andy Schauf. I, yeah. I mean, there seems to be this proper rich seam of, of artists coming out of Canada at the minute. Um, I don't know why. What, what do you think it's? What do you think's happening? Well, I mean, I think that exposure is sort of easier now because it's less reliant on travel and all that stuff. So it's maybe more of a level playing field. Like in Canada, the hard thing is the next major city where you can try to draw for a larger crowd is a thousand miles away. Mm. Um, but you know, now that sort of the technology brings us all closer, it doesn't really matter where the artist is based or is from. Canada has very supportive uh, arts funding situation. Um, you know, some people say it's kind of cliquey and some nepotism and stuff going on, but besides any of that, we're all just very fortunate there's, that there's anything yeah. that the federal level in the way of support for artists so i think that's a big factor you know they let uh they let some great talented creative people have the budget to make something that can compete on the world stage and then you get to see it actually happen and you know a lot of the artists that you mentioned are sort of in that like hey this is actually cool stuff we're not creating disney pop stars so much (laughs) although we have a fair share of those too, I guess. But yeah, a lot of, I feel like the funding actually works in cases like the ones that you mentioned where, okay, then they get critical mass and then there they go. And they can go play festivals around the world once, once that's a viable thing again. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, it really has helped launch careers of people that might otherwise not have gotten the opportunity or the, second look from the bigger players that are yeah. getting behind them so i don't want to you know say it's all because of the money that got spent but it doesn't hurt and you know maybe the just the 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 lifestyle or the climate or whatever you know there's a lot of songwriting going on these days because you know not much else to do and (laughs) and even even in a non-covid time uh you know there's a lot of inside time in canada where where you're kind of holed up so i think it is a good spawning ground for artists and writers and stuff Um, it's just the the execution side that's tough like touring like i mentioned it's really hard here because there's the vast distances between major population centers yeah near the complete opposite of the uk <laughs> yeah that's why we always love coming to the uk it's like wait can we get a one hour drive today <laughs> of a 14 hour drive and a border to cross and you gotta get strip searched and everything it's just <laughs> like the uk and europe just seems like just so easy to tour because of the yeah proximity and the you know that there's no real borders yeah i mean i guess maybe more so now with brexit going on they probably want to make sure all your merch is legit and everything so yeah it's um it's really difficult now um yeah i uh 
I, I almost, in fact, I, I didn't end up going in the end. Somebody else covered for me, but um, had a a show yesterday uh, on Monday, even in Germany, that was that went ahead, and uh, the just for one show in Germany, the amount of bureaucracy that had to go yeah. on, you know, yeah. outside of COVID regulations, you know, just even, yeah. Um, and you're right, it's all about merch counting, visas, and especially yeah. lower level touring through Europe is going to be. Um, very difficult yeah yeah so yeah it, it, no, interested the red I'd, tape is a killer for sure that's it i don't know how it's going to pan out but we'll we'll see we'll see um yeah. uh, hopefully um i think uh i think the musicians union is lobbying for some kind of um europe-wide visa card so that you can you know yeah. if uh you know once you've kind of got your main visa you can you can travel the whole of the the sort of main europe continent um, but it's the low yeah. level touring that's going to suffer it's it's you know the yeah. people who are relying on on merch sales and, and the fees of the shows to in order to fund the next record it's going to be very hard yeah absolutely i, I wonder if uh, you could sort of just give me a bit of a rundown of your history and you know i know yeah. you know i know you're a a producer and a, and a drummer and yeah. you know numerous other things um yeah but what, what's your sort of musical history and, and how did you sort of come to the point where you're you're currently at yeah okay uh yeah so i don't know how far back we really want to go but i guess um yeah always drawn to music had a musical mom's side of the family not so much dad's side yeah, and my, my brother and I would play in bands growing up. I took to the drums, and immediately after high school, moved to the big city to become a huge rock star. <laughs> 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 uh, and you know that that took a little longer than I was prepared for. So I started. I went to music school, studied jazz, drums here okay. and in Toronto, and then always loved being in the studio and playing and then uh i guess once digital audio became a viable reality if you um then i was able to sort of do things that you wouldn't be able to do unless you had massive capital to have a giant mixing console and stuff so i basically started doing little mixes and remixes for a friend who had a recording studio in Vancouver. And this is like the days of ADAP. So mm. I was like transferring ADAPs to the computer one tape at a time and syncing them up and then making pretty questionable remixes of some of these songs. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of learning my chops on the, uh, you know, in the digital realm, like, you know, Previous to that, you know, our band won some contests here and there. And one of them, the prize was a few days in the only studio in the small town that we lived in. Mm. And and I fell in love there too and just started hanging out. And pretty soon it got to the point where Cam, the owner, would let me come in at night with the band and work on stuff. So I knew my way around enough to get myself into some trouble on the analog side of things. And then, like I said, I didn't have you know the finances to build anything like that in vancouver so but yeah once computers came out i sort of had to figure out how to do this in the box 
And then since then, it's been working myself backwards out of the box, <laughs> back into the analog world where I guess I could turn my phone back, sitting at my old Studer console. Absolutely. And the, yeah. the two-inch machine out back. And so, yeah, I've kind of uh, gone back in time to a point where it's now like a pretty solid hybrid situation with uh, with the old tech and the new but yeah, so along the way, sort of played a lot of drums on the other side of the glass, but always coming into the control room and bugging the engineers and poking around and asking what what, like a lot of people do to me now. Mm-hmm. And I can tell, you know, some of them are like, boy, was I this annoying when I was doing that to the engineer? Or some of them are like, oh, this is great. I like working with it person and answering the questions and stuff like that so uh yeah just always curious about that side of it and then they sort of just kept going hand in hand like playing in more projects touring more and recording more to the point where i decided to build my own spot here in vancouver in a beat up old warehouse downtown um and you know, slowly taking over more rooms of the warehouse for more ISO booths and a piano room and a like reverb chamber type of situation. And just pretty much by the end, it was like one half of this big dilapidated warehouse, um, which was a great place to learn my chops, be able to offer Vancouver bands a affordable place to come and make cool records yeah so so that what worked nicely um all the while touring more and more and more some of that with the Vigo Tanyas and then Freddy solo stuff too um so yeah got to see the world and um and keep the recording stuff going at the same time then my partner got really sick, diagnosed with breast cancer. And oh. I thought, hey, you know what? This is not a good time to be touring. So I handed the reins of most of the things I was drumming in to a great drummer here, Leon Power, um, who's now still Frazee's drummer. He's, hmm. he's great. He's my hero. <laughs> um, and focused full time on the studio side of things so I could be in town and just, I thought I'd missed the rush of the stage and all that kind of stuff, but I really haven't, you know, I really (laughs) have not like if I had never done it, maybe. Yeah. I'd feel like I missed something, but you know, having toured a ton and seen everywhere, um, I, and, you know, I was playing in bands where it's not about the chops of the drummer and I'm not, you know, <laughs> signing people's chests after the show and stuff. It's, like, uh, it's very, you know, a special moment when someone would discreetly come up after the show and say, hey, I know how hard it is to just be super supportive and discreet and do your role <laughs> without getting in the way while the attention is focused on the singer and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, yeah. you know, and that's like a role playing drummer, not a, you know, 
I'm, despite my greatest efforts and practice and school and study, I just never really was destined for drum virtuosity, more just like, <laughs> and that's kind of the music I listen to too, you know, like, yeah, listen to Neil Young and you just throw down a groove that feels good and you get so much deeper into people's bodies while they absorb this music that they're now listening to that they can take in like you've you've brought them in and now yeah. they can listen to that person's voice or or be fall in love with the words or whatever right but if you in music like that if you are trying to get your licks in then you're you're taken away from the greater picture of the the puzzle that's going on a hundred percent it's a it's, your story sounds like a very similar story to mine, to be honest with you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so sure. I, st I studied jazz and did, you know, the okay. mentioned dancing years already, and it's a very similar background sort of role, wow. supportive role. No way. And I'm, you know, there, there's so much to unpack in what you've just said, and I think something that used to get said to me um, by those people you mentioned <laughs> right. um, in those moments was about intention. And that's certainly something that I get in your playing is every note feels like it has a weight of intention behind it and is adding um, something. It's, it's adding, you know, every kick, every snare, everything you choose to do has, has that weight behind it. And it's, um, and a bit of gravitas around it in the sense that it's contributing to the music um, in a way that it's not flippant, you know, you're not just throwing away a couple of snare hits here and there, or, a, right. you know, it, it's like, well, that was intended to be there and it's there for a purpose. And then you can cool. hear that through all of the records that, that I've listened that you've played on. And I, I think that that, um, it's that simplicity and, and, uh, yeah, intention behind what you do that sort of works really well. <laughs> cool. Well, appreciate that. Glad to hear that it comes across that yeah. way. Cause yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's it's by choice to be pretty economical with the grooves just like hey what's important here and and i also have to say that most records that people comment on wow i really love the grooves on those records that you played on if you look on the credits there's a guy named darren paris playing the bass oh okay <laughs> and it's like I think that if that was somebody else, that people wouldn't say that. You know, I really feel like he is the reason why I get a lot of compliments. <laughs> okay. Not just so much with the end product, but even like finessing the parts together, like we do all the playing live. Mm. And we will work out parts and kind of who's going to go where. And then, okay, we've kind of over mapped it, over calculated. Let's, let's sort of just know that the verse is based around uh, uh, and we're allowed a little freedom within that and then we'll just have a nice rapport where he fills a spot i throw a kick in that he doesn't match and it's kind of works and we kind of have similar ideas about how busy or not things will be to make the groove work so yeah i, I got to I got to give a lot of credit for things that feel good to Darren because he's amazing. So how, 
in the in those kind of situations, there's certainly a balance to be had between um, sort of analyzing what you're going to play or like pre-preparing or rehearsing or whatever. Yeah. And then, and also um, leaving enough room for interpretation, but making sure that the um, there's enough thought that it's the, yeah. the, the correct amount. And, yeah. um, and it, it's, you're not leaving it. I, I, I guess to, to an artist that's not used to, to working in that way, it could be misconstrued yeah. as being lazy but it's not, yeah. it's, it's leaving stuff to chance because they're the happy yeah, accidents. But how does, yeah. how do you, if you're even aware of it, how do you balance that kind of feeling, you know, maybe with an artist present or when you're doing a session and you've been, you know, someone's presents you with a song that you're going to play on, you know, how does yeah. that, how do you take it from listening to the song the first time to getting a take um, yeah. that you kind of all are happy with? sometimes I guess that could happen in half an hour sometimes. Yeah, um, that's a really cool question. I never really think about like verbalizing that transition from listening to the demo. We're all up here in the control room and they've got their iPhone out and they're playing us the song. We're yeah. scribbling out a little form chart. Yeah. And, and, you know, in those cases, again, I feel like it's really cool to be able to like as a session drummer guy, I show up sometimes in those situations with a bass player and a rhythm guitar player that I don't know. And we have to build that rapport and talk very nice and Canadianly about how we're going to do this or that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then there's situations like with an artist that you know or a rhythm section that you've worked with a bunch where a lot of that you get to skip past and just like get down to like, okay, I'm feeling this, and oh, hey, what if we do that push into bar three and not into bar four? And then, like I said, you start to over-math it, and <laughs> and you can tell when you listen back, you're like, oh, man, we are, we're listening to ourselves here, not the song again. So we got to backtrack and be like, okay, our first instinct was good about the basics of the groove and then the rest we need to just follow the song shape and allow each other some freedom and again like listening to the records that i love at least um you know it's all very dependent on genre and the artist and stuff for sure but mm. in that sort of folk-ish realm where there's grooves going on which is a you know that's not an official genre, but uh, <laughs> but it's a lot of music, you know. Yeah. Like a lot of people write folk songs on the guitar and want to have drums and bass grooves going on, right? Yes. That's like a massive amount of music. So, in that world, I feel like you risk making decisions on day one when you're building those bass and drum parts that are going to really determine how calculated and refined the rest of the record goes so if you if you map everything out and do all your you know every bass note has a kick and all the pushes are the same and everything's going that route then i feel more likely that down the line you keep going that way and you end up with a pretty uh pretty 
preconceived sounding product, you know, like a very sort of produced thing. Whereas mm. if you leave some freedoms at the beginning and some departures from bass and drums, then you get that little bit of swagger and loose feel where then the next guy that comes in feels like he has an opportunity or she to express a bit more and then therefore inject some personality into the music and you're not just left with you know a very nice proper recording that has everything laid out nicely that's all fine and well but you, if you have some great personalities involved it's nicer to allow them to speak and create something greater than what you could have done by programming it all or yeah, whatever yeah. right like that's the whole point of of having talented people around you is to let them do things that you wouldn't have thought of or or that are slightly outside the boundaries of what you are are trying to contain or create to make the song work yeah and again all a lot of my production is co-production where I really am working with the artist to make the thing that they think they want to make, but also just helping guide decisions and, and turn it into something hopefully better than what they thought it was going mm -hmm. to be. So all that said has to be balanced against where the artist wants to take it because they're the ones that has to believe in it and love it and go play it every night and, <laughs> and, and feel good doing that. So mm -hmm. I feel like if I just smoked cigars in the back and told everyone what to do, <laughs> even if it was pretty cool and it wasn't really the artists in their soul and in their gut, it might not get any legs because they, they feel like it's it's not them or something. So yeah, I, yeah. I don't think I've ever crossed that line. I'm probably a little too far the other way. I probably maybe should have said, hey, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I don't want to risk that compromising an artist's integrity. But I have, uh, like, more in answer to your question about that, uh, how do you get from the demo to the, to what's actually going down on tape. Um, so many factors, like the ones I mentioned, but also one thing that I've found more and more, and again, this maybe is because I'm around people that I trust and are talented people, but that that first instinct is usually the right thing. So here, when I'm tracking, everything's going to tape, but it's also getting dumped into the computer on the fly so we'll go down throw hack through the arrangement with our original sort of idea about what the feel should be like and you know we're missing the bridge and we're forgetting yeah. the, the double chorus or whatever <laughs> and then we we kind of learn the arrangement better and refine our parts a bit and we think oh hey we're getting somewhere and then okay okay let's go have a listen and we'll come upstairs and okay yeah that's pretty cool and we you know oh yeah that's tight going into the bridge but hey let's pull up that first one and just see what we were doing and it's like oh there it is that mm. is so cool how can we get that back but also play the arrangement right and 
and troubleshoot some of these sections that didn't work with that original vibe. So, and that's where I feel like, again, the studio hybrid thing kind of is handy because if we were just on tape, we would probably rewound and gone over that because that 500 bucks a reel, you can't keep everything. <laughs> no. So dumping it in on the fly is nice and handy for being able to quickly review and, and, uh, and decide what's, what's working and what's not. And even from a sonic perspective, sometimes like a lot of times when I'm playing drums, I've kind of, running up and down the stairs, setting some levels. And then I've got my assistant here driving the ship while I'm down there. And, or, you know, maybe I've got him down there hitting the drums while I dial and get stuff in. And then I go down and take one happens and maybe I'm hitting harder and the snare is really splatting and, and I'll come up and hear that and dial it back a bit. And then, like I said, we'll play some takes, come listen. And again, that first one, Oh, that was actually really cool that the snare was hit so smashed to the tape or whatever. So even some of the gut instincts or happy accidents on an engineering level can be inspiring. So not only are we going to shift our groove back to that original thing, I'm actually going to make it so the, you know, the snare's hitting the tape too hard again yeah. or whatever. So... And tying this in with the phrasey stuff, the, the sort of instinctual thing is the her newest record, You Can Be the Sun, is largely created from first take improvisations. Wow. Like okay. like largely. Like wow. some of the some of the things that you like, I think the first 30 seconds of the first song on the record are the first time anyone has ever played that ever, not even knowing what it was going to be other than this is in G. Hey, how about do something in G? Wow. <laughs> Crazies at the wow. piano. And, uh, and it's just like, well, that was really cool. And then we'll come up, you know, they played that for 14 minutes or something until the tape ran out. And I'm like, <laughs> hey guys, we should stop. And, and they'd come up and listen and try to build from it. And then again, at the end, it's like, hey, let's go listen to the very first time anyone ever did that. And you can like hear it in the right before the counting. They're like, Darren's a giggle G and then A or whatever. Right? It's like <laughs> literally a jam. That's incredible. Uh, that then. You know, the song got built from that jam, but the original inception of the opening was never achieved again. So we had to go back to those original takes that were not on a click or anything and steal them and slice them and insert them into what was the full structured song version that we had later. So again, there's a lot to be said for the catching the catching the initial um initial thought and feeling and and inspiration that's there i mean it's a lot i, I learned that from crazy way back just even recording vocals it's like okay this person is capable of just delivering a devastating vocal the very first time so don't 
screw it up you know like, like, or don't <laughs> yeah. don't not press record like don't when she says oh let's just run it and i'll get my headphones set up you don't press play you press record mm-hmm. because you might get something that you never i mean it takes a willingness to dive into lots of takes and do a bit of editing but yeah i don't press play anymore i just press record fantastic i this is incredible i love it and i uh I, I just think it's almost like on a subconscious level at that first take, you're reacting in the moment. You're no, you're not, your, yeah. your, your conscious mind is not, uh, is not thinking Engaged. it's re- yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you're just reactionary. And um, yeah. that's what, yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And at a, you know, like a primal level of drums and bass and voice voice, that's great. You can't do that with, eight string players in a room. You guys just do something cool together. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't know what the viola is going to play and it's going to sound like crap. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't really understand that either. It's like a lot of string sessions here. I like have to check in and be like, uh, so is there like arrangements or is there someone leading or is this an ensemble that's worked together a bunch and they know, oh no, I just hired so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and was hoping that they just come up with some cool chord pads or whatever. It's like, yeah, you know, it's not a keyboard player where he knows where his thing, each finger is. These are individual minds and you can't <laughs> expect them to not just all play the same note or spread it out evenly or whatever. Right. So mm-hmm. within, you know, each stage of a production requires different things. And I would say that, yeah, with the sort of, with the first take kind of primal stuff, like you're saying, where the conscious brain and the the left side or the right side or whichever one that's responsible for thinking in an orderly fashion is sort of turned off while you're coming up with something. Yeah. That's great at that. How does it work sound wise for you? I mean, I'm asking this question from a drummer's point of view. I mean, often, you know, often I, you know, I have my, my kit set up and I don't know, maybe, maybe yesterday I did a session and I took all of the padding out of the kick drum and yeah. I sit down for whatever I've got on that next day. And yeah. there's a, you know, there's a deep, you know, like a low tuned acrylite that's sort of going yeah. and there's yeah. no padding in the, in the bass drum. And I sit down yeah. and I, I start learning this track and I maybe just keep the acrylite there cause it's there and I tune it up a little bit and it's yeah. maybe got less of a thwack to it. And then I don't know, maybe the Tom's had some tea towels on and I'm just, I'm kind of learning the song and tweaking without thinking about it too much as it happens. And then that ends yeah. up being purely almost by chance. That's the sound yeah. for that next song. Um, yeah. And it could have been that I had the previous day, it was any song and it was likely yeah. that I'd have just made that, you know, tweaked it without working, but how does that, you know, what, how would you, again, like, how would you verbalize how that works for you? Yeah. I mean, I think again, we're at sort of instinct and, uh, and that's part of what makes you a valuable drummer to people. It's like, Oh, he's going to come in and just do something that is going to set the tone or whatever for how it's going to work. So, uh, everybody's different. It's all personal here at the studio i've got you know lots of great vintage kits that i've collected but i also have lots of drummers coming through and i 
you know, I have a few precious things that I don't give everyone access to, but for the most part, I let people go at it with tunings and stuffings and dampenings and all that kind of stuff. So when it comes time to make a record that I'm playing drums on again, who knows what kind of shape <laughs> these kids are in. And I don't have a sort of like, you know, drum store, drum sound where this is how we do it and the toms are a fourth apart and, uh, you know, <laughs> it ends up being that way a lot, but it's, uh, it's, I guess a lot of it comes from my remembrances of what I think cool drums for a track like this might sound like based on other records that I love mm-hmm. or or like cross-referencing a genre, like, oh, what if we did this, even though this is a ballad, if we had this real tight, small drum sound or something, that doesn't usually work, but you know what I mean? Like, just like, <laughs> it's just those thoughts in your head of what can I kind of go for? Like you're yeah. saying, it's like, oh, this is big and open, and maybe it's going to be cool on this track. There's some sort of basic guidelines that I think I just do without thinking much about it like you know if it's a slow track i can leave the kick a bit more open and long and and low Mm -hmm. and if if the frequency of kick drums and by that i mean how many there are in a bar uh not the pitch is is higher then probably need some stuffing and and depends on what the bass player is doing. So all those things, again, they come into a place where it happens a lot quicker when you're working with people that you know and trust or have sort of a target that you're kind of going for, mm-hmm. even though you never achieve it or never really want to. You know, like a lot of times I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll just go for that super, you know, dry out on the weekend kind of drum thing and yeah, yeah. I'm listening back and I'm like, yeah, there it is. Got it. And then I'll put on <laughs> out on the weekend. I'm like, holy, that is not what I have here. <laughs> Even though in my head, it's like, yeah, that's basically it. But I think that's what personal personalities behind the players gets you. You know, mm. I, I um, like, I suppose it's working quickly in the situation too. You know, I can imagine you know, you probably, I don't know, you grab whatever's available to you at the beginning of the day. You're all sat around rehearsing or, you know, running through that first take. You're yeah. not going to hold up proceedings by adjusting. You know, but guys, can I just, I need to swap all the symbols and the snare round because I'm not feeling it. You're just going to quickly um, adjust what's, you're going to do what is necessary very fast in front of you to not stem the flow of creativity. Um, it's but true. to get the that, sound close to you. That's really true. I mean, that's, that's like maybe the days of those budgets for most bands are kind of gone and maybe that's a good thing, but it's, I feel like, yeah, based on the time it takes to swap, like snares are pretty quick. So I don't mind doing that. And like do that. Like even from the control room, I'll like say, Hey, why don't we throw up the superphonic yeah. the, the six and a half on this one and, and, We'll do it quickly and it'll be, okay, there we go. There's the beef that we needed. 
But usually you want to make the right kick decision at a time because <laughs> yeah. it's kind of hard to swap out without like creating a, you know, a, like losing the losing momentum. And then, you know, somebody sees the kick getting swapped out and pretty soon the bass player is going to get a coffee and then somebody's <laughs> on the phone and it's yeah. like, okay, that was a two hour experiment and it was better before. So, (laughs) but yeah, you know, if you have, if you have a couple of cool flavors at your disposal and then, you know, the infinite tweakability of each drum gives you a lot of quick flexibility. Like you said, just a quick detune or throw an extra blanket in or take a blanket out really changes the, the, the sonics of it and i yeah like these decisions or non-decisions at the beginning of of tracks are hugely influential on the outcome of the whole thing mm. because the, you know that's what everyone else is basing everything they do upon because it's already laid down so it's important and and you want to get it right but you don't want to let your intellectual mind get in the way too much either. So it's a no. fine, fine balance. And you know, some days it's hard. It's like how how do you balance it from, uh, you know, when you when you're dealing with an artist and say, uh, trying to think of it, how to quite articulate the situation, but you know, say you got a really cool takedown and maybe maybe the snare sound isn't quite what you had in mind mm-hmm. it's working um but it's not perfect yeah. perfect in inverted commas yeah. you know um but the take was really cool and you know how does that conversation go where the artist goes oh i'm un- you know i'm a bit unsure about that snare sound and you're kind of thinking yeah me too but the take's great and it doesn't matter yeah. that much because it's working you know yeah. that that must that must be a consideration yeah, that, occasionally yeah that definitely comes up and then you know, my producer engineer brain kicks in and says, okay, well, doesn't mean we have to erase that one. Let's spend, let's set a timer, half an hour. And if we can dial this next sound and get an equally awesome take, and, you know, while I'm switching out snares or mics or compressors or whatever it is that we need to achieve the new snare sound, the drummer can be up here reviewing and listening to what the artist likes about. Hi there. So, yeah, so we got a little visitor. Can you hello, say hello? visitor. Oh, she should, she should be in bed. Are you going to oh, go to bed, yeah, darling? I guess it's night over there. Darling, I'm busy. Can you go, can you go find mummy? <laughs> Sorry, just give me one, <laughs> one second. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no sweat. Oh, sweetie. Come on, sweetie. You can take those with you. Oh, sorry about that. No sweat. She's um she's in a she's two. She's called Etta and um Aww. she uh, she's at that stage now where she's tired but she's wired and just oh, want, yeah. yeah, you put her in bed at you know quarter past seven and then you hear thudum 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 and she's on her <laughs> way downstairs. Oh, yeah. Am <laughs> I not tired? And you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you can stay up, but you kind of don't want to send her to bed because she's she's so absorbent at that time she just wants to sit and and like oh, be cool. interested in playing with stuff and feel yeah. guilty sending her to bed when she's in that kind of learning mode yeah it's hard to shut that down yeah exactly yeah. um 
So yeah, I, I, I love it. I, yeah, I love everything that you're talking about, and I, I love the. I kind of there's a quite a lot I want to I want to get through. I mean, yeah, relative, yeah. Re, um, in relation to what we've just been speaking about, how does your hybrid setup work? Um, I mean, I'm kind of thinking, uh, gen, like technically, how are okay, you? Yeah. How are you moving from tape to the computer at the same time? Yeah. Oh my goodness! What a meanie. I am sorry that I cut it off there. It was about halfway through the conversation and it seemed like a good point to stop on and it was a little teaser for next week's episode. The way that he approaches his hybrid recording is is fascinating and it's uh, unique to him only, it seems. Uh, and I'm going to probably try and attempt to do something similar at my studio. I need to pick his brains a little more about how he does it and some of the more specific details. But yeah, that's a really, really interesting part of the conversation. Um. Please forgive me also for leaving a little bit of the uh, sort of <laughs> well, the interruption from my daughter. I kind of find those things interesting and it makes me, uh, I think it makes the conversation seem a little bit more real time because uh, I don't cut anything out of these conversations and um, all of that kind of stuff just shows the flow of the conversation. So I kind of wanted to leave that in there for you. Um, okay, so that just leaves me to say, please leave a review for this podcast if you can. So whatever platform you're listening to, just scroll down and, uh, and leave a little review for it. That helps with the sort of publicity and stuff, I guess. Um, also, you can find out more about me and my website, allyouneedisdrums.com. I'm also on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums and Facebook. Um, so yes, a big thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, Adam Mallet for the artwork, and for Rory Hancock for doing all of the necessary work to get this podcast to you. Have a fantastic week, and I will speak to you next Tuesday. Goodbye!